song from a production of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, performed high up along the banks of the Hudson River in Putnam County, New York. The curtains actually just come down on the 2008 season of the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival in Garrison. Good morning, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. In just a moment, we'll meet the director of Twelfth Night and two of his actors. And later in the show, we'll hear about a new play by William Shakespeare. Yes, I said new. We'll explain later. Also coming up, it's the final act for two of New York City's most beloved ballparks. Reporter Ben Allen will tell us what people are saying about the closing of Shea and Yankee Stadiums at the end of the season. Every summer, Shakespeare comes alive on the grounds of the historic 19th century Boscobel Estate in Garrison. This year, the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival celebrated its 22nd season with productions of Cymbeline and Twelfth Night. Channel 13 will give viewers an intimate look at what went into putting on Twelfth Night next week when it airs a documentary titled Shakespeare on the Hudson. The program follows all the backstage drama as the director and actors prepare for opening night. The full performance of Twelfth Night will follow the documentary. The director of Twelfth Night, John Plummer, paid a visit to our studios along with his wife, actor Maya Guest, who played the role of Festy in the production, and Kelsey Olson, who played Antonia. John kicked off the conversation by telling us about the setting for the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival. It's this beautiful park with this Federalist mansion on it. It's beautifully manicured estate with woods surrounded by woods, gorgeous view of the Hudson River of Constitution Marsh below, of West Point across the water. It's just sort of idyllic, um, you know, magisterial, natural terrain to play these great plays in because the plays themselves are they were originally written to be performed outdoors for the most part they are you know just rife with references to nature to play out there is just gives us so much more it's pretty pretty incredible this is not the first time john that you've directed a shakespeare play not the first time i've directed a shakespeare play but it is the first time i've directed there for the hudson valley shakespeare festival what is it about shakespeare for you that you find most interesting it's the best writing in, in our language, I, I think. And you can believe it because they're still around. You know, these, I mean, Twelfth Night was probably written in 1580. And it's, you know, we had, you know, 15,000 people loving it this summer. You know, that's pretty incredible writing, I think. And it's, and it's not a translation. It's, it's our language. It's our, it's our script. So I think that, and of course, it is translated. It's translated into every known language in the world, and it, and it plays. It just touches, no matter who you are, where you are, and what station or, or moment you are in your life, these plays f- somehow find a connection to you. And I don't know how that works, but and I'm talking about the living plays. I'm not talking about the English class version of them, which I think <laughs> has a secret mission to kill them. You know? <laughs> but I think we had a, we had a lot of English teachers come see the shows this summer, and you know, hopefully uh, they can go back to their classes and teach these as as living contemporary works that just happen to have been written you know, 400 years ago, because I think that's what is so incredible about them is they still feel contemporary. They still feel like they're just happening right now. Let's talk about what it's like to act in a Shakespeare play. It's a real privilege. It's exciting. It's really 
challenging. Maya, you played a role that is traditionally played by a man, Festy. Yes, yes. That particular role was challenging. So I've done Shakespeare before, and this was a new experience altogether because I think the nature of Festy and Festy's language, it was really... um, Festy's an extremely complicated character uh, and and is kind of the author, has the author's voice, you know, and there are I mean, I said at the very beginning, our our job is to try to decode this play because there have been so many cliches built up over the years around how Twelfth Night is done. You know, Toby Belch is always a big fat guy. Festy is always a sort of a melancholy old man. You know, obviously, Maya is not a melancholy old man. Um, And but I think that otherwise you wouldn't have married her. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, I have such a yen for melancholy old man. Um, But anyway, uh, she you know, the, the challenge was to decode the re- and find, sort of uncover those layers of veneer that have been painted on over the years and get to the true text. What was exciting for both Maya and Kelsey, who were both playing parts originally written for men, is we got to see a completely other side to these characters, but I think it was truer, you know, than what you would see in a cliched production. Kelsey, were you intimidated to take on this role? It was really hard to forget that this was a man's role, but it was so necessary to do that to get to the heart of that character. With John's help, I was able to explore that character in a way that made it very real for the audience. And it's, you know, I'm the only person that gets to play Antonia in the 2008 um, Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival production of Twelfth Night. And it was so necessary that I felt a real strong ownership of that role and did it to the best of my ability. The work is never done, though. I mean, I still... The last night of the show, I was like, oh, I still have to find some more things because Shakespeare has so much embedded in that text. And it's beautiful to explore it as much as you can. You're pretty new to acting overall, aren't you? Yeah. (laughs) I just graduated college this year uh, in May from the University of Minnesota Guthrie Actor Training Program. So this was your first major role? Yeah. Yep. What was it like working with more experienced actors? At first, I felt really intimidated, you know, I think that's just an insecurity all young actors have. You want to be good and you want to be as good as everyone else. And what I learned is that everyone else was so generous with their skills that it really empowered me to give whatever I have to give to the production. And that was spiritually fulfilling in a way that I'd never experienced before. And I learned so much by watching the other actors and playing with them on stage. It was it was wonderful. And and they're intimidated, too. I mean, the experienced actors are are as intimidated by the young people with their fearlessness as the young people are intimidated by the older folks with their experience. 500 people auditioned for this play. As many people as we had in the audience every night. I know. Uh, The hardest thing about it is not being able to use everybody that was great. You say in the documentary, though, that auditioning is an inherently flawed process. It is an inherently flawed process because how can you possibly tell the totality of, of, of a human being and what they're capable of in five minutes? Was it assumed that your wife, Maya, would audition for a role in Twelfth Night? Well, it was oh. assumed she was going to audition. I mean, she wanted to audition. She's worked at the festival before. I hadn't, actually. But she yeah, I was there first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was thinking of women for Festi, and I had several women audition for Festi. There's a, such a huge connection between creating art and, and you know, a spiritual practice and artistic practice. And... I think where Maya is spiritually was really the right spot for for this character. It yeah. seemed like there were pretty much no rules in doing this. <laughs> Not a lot. I mean, you, you know, you decided 
that everyone should wear skirts yes. in this play. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't so much a decision as an epiphany, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, everybody wore skirts. And it, it, me too, actually. For most of the rehearsals, I was like, well, I, if, if I'm going to make them all wear skirts for the rehearsals, I'm going to wear a skirt too. Mm-hmm. So the skirt thing was weird. It was an epiphany, you know, and... Uh, and it, and then afterward, it kind of made sense for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, which you'll see if you see the show. But, uh, yeah, there weren't a lot of rules. I don't like to plan things at all. We I walk into the rehearsal with really no plan and just a lot of faith and a lot of prayer and a lot of, uh, you know, feeling for the text, you know, and feeling for the other people. And I feel like if we all come in, you know, with the right kind of preparation, but without a lot of overconscious planning you know because that's when we do all that planning we're using our little tiny brain you know our little little conscious part of the forward part of our brain but if we don't do that we open up to so much more possibility that's there in the universe and certainly there in the text so yeah it was a little wild and i think sometimes people were like you we need more planning you know are you really captaining this ship or you know are you sailing off the port bow and you know swimming and i was like yeah i'm swimming i'm swimming there is no ship What's the ship you're talking about? We're all in the water. <laughs> How did that work for you, Kelsey, especially that you're new to all of this? It was scary at first. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's so much easier to be told what to do, you know, but that's less creative and that's not interesting to watch on stage, you know. And, and once I allowed myself to enjoy that freedom, it was really a wonderful experience. John, it's important for you to allow the actors to rehearse on their own, yes. away from you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, w- I really encourage that, you know, and, and I don't know how much they did or didn't. I really don't know. But um, I did encourage that. because They I th- did, though, because they- I saw the documentary. Kelsey <laughs> was out there doing oh, a lot of rehearsing. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't know that. Oh. We rehearsed, yeah, we rehearsed quite a bit on our own. Just um, Well, Max and I had... We weren't in the same grade, but we'd had such a similar vocabulary that we were like, oh, let's let's try it this way. And let's, you know, we just tried it with all the different exercises that we had learned to kind of free ourselves up and to bring some ideas into the the rehearsal space, you know, and then have it keep changing from there. Max is? Oh, Max is Sebastian, and he's actually back in Minnesota right now. Max was another apprentice that we cast after the first week of rehearsals, and he and Kelsey were in school together for a few years, and... You know, it was a big leap of faith for him, I think, to take this part. He plays Viola's twin brother, you know, and, uh, oh, he was terrific. He was just terrific. Kelsey, you and Max did this push-pull thing out there on the grass while you were rehearsing. What was that all about? Yeah, the push-pull is actually just a a way to think about objectives in the scene. You know, you're you're either trying to get something from somebody or you're you're trying to get them to do something to you. And the push-pull is just a physicalization of that tension between two people. And and sometimes you just want to pull away from it and sometimes you want to go into it. It was really indicative of what parts of the speeches I was trying to really get at him and what times I was really trying to hide from him as the character. Let's talk about the language used Mm. in Shakespeare. Were there any words that you didn't understand? Oh, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And how do you as an actor then say those words and make it seem like you understand what you're saying? I have a handy-dandy lexicon that was used quite heavily. That's the Shakespearean dictionary for all the words that are in Shakespeare. And um, kind of after that, you just you, you either find a I either find a word that's somehow related to like my modern speech that I would use in place of that, and just try to match that energy and that force. But the more you know it, 
the better you can act it. All actors, of course, have their own techniques to remember their lines. Mm -hmm. Kelsey, you roll around in the grass. I sure do. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so much. All the truth comes I out know. now. Uh, all the truth. Sorry, John. <laughs> What's that about? Um, it was actually a, just, you know, a, something I learned in school, and it's about connecting your right and your left brain by rolling from side to side. And um, once you flop over... Onto one side, you release on that breath the line, so that way you're connecting the breath and the, the line together, and you're also trying not to think too much about it because you're trying to use both sides of your brain to flip your body and to say your lines. Death is a major theme of Twelfth Night, and I know, John, you were asked by an Episcopal church to come in and talk <laughs> about spiritualism in this play. Yes, the theme of death is really hangs over the play because the two principal female characters have both lost a brother. Now, one of them has truly died. The other one believes he's dead, but he's actually alive. It's the twin that, that Max plays. And so a lot of times that's just kind of discounted, I think, in productions of Twelfth Night. You just, oh, get past that. That's just a circumstance. But to me, that's actually what's driving so many of the actions of so many of the characters in the play. It's people, why do you go into a disguise as your brother? It's because you're mourning his death. So you put on his clothes and you become him so that you can have him close to you. Why do you have your whole, why do you rejecting the affections of another man, a young man who's after you? It's because he reminds you too much of your brother and you can't have somebody wooing you, you know? So these, all the, and you down the line why are you getting drunk every day it's being you know it's because you're in mourning you know everybody's responses to death everybody's way of grieving is different and sometimes it's to party and celebrate and sometimes it's to you know cloister yourself off but i think that that drives a lot of the play and and i getting to talk in that church my brother died three and a half years ago accidentally and it was a terrible terrible loss for all of us and for me, uh, being able, I, I did his eulogy in that church, and that was the last time I had spoken there. And so to be asked to do this again, I couldn't help but make the connection. And obviously the connection was present for me, but I never spoke about it in rehearsal because I didn't want people to think that this was, you know, uh, something that they had to live up to or anything like that. It wasn't until the last day of rehearsal that I explained to them that I had this sort of, you know, mystical connection to this play. Um, and that the fact that, you know, my wife is playing the clown whose job it is to cheer up a character whose brother has died was also not lost on the Freudian side of my psyche. So, <laughs> so this was a whole cathartic experience for you. I think it was a cathartic experience. It, I didn't go into it that way. I, t when Terry offered me the job, he, I don't think he was aware of it. I wasn't aware of it. But I think it became that, you know, I think the job of an artist and I think the job of a human being is to try to draw greater connections between ourselves, each other, you know, between the living and the dead. How do you think the audience received this play there along the Hudson? They would get standing ovations pretty much every night. So I think the audience laughed a lot. It's a comedy. So, you know, you know, if it's working, you know, you can do a tragedy and think we're doing great, but you're not really. And you can't get away with that in a comedy. They they got a lot of laughs. I think it was a different audience pretty much every night. Sometimes they'd laugh at certain things and sometimes at other things. But I also think it's more than just a comedy. You know, the more I think I, I work on these plays, the more I realize the comedies are so sad and tragic. And I think the audience received that, too. There was a really um, visceral experience for me. Um, in the end of Act 5, I'm standing a little further back. 
And there was a, a woman who was sobbing when Viola and Sebastian got together because there was something so beautiful about the realization of someone you love being alive when you thought they were dead. And she was just sobbing. And we saw her after the show, and she came up to Max, and she said, you know, I I had a, a brother who was a prisoner of war, and um, he finally came home to us, and I knew exactly how you two felt. And, like, knowing that we had touched her in such a wonderful way was, was really an honor. I am gone, sir. Kelsey Olsen played Antonia in this summer's production of Twelfth Night at the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival in Garrison. We also heard from Maya Guest, who played Festy, and her husband, John Plummer, who directed the show. You can get a behind-the-scenes look at what went into putting on the play, as well as see the entire production Thursday night, starting at 8, on Channel 13. There's a new play out by William Shakespeare. No, I'm not making this up. There's a new play by William Shakespeare. It's called All the World's a Grave. And with me now is the person behind that play. No, not William Shakespeare, but John Reed, an accomplished author and a creative writing teacher at the New School University. Good morning, John. Hola. A new play by William Shakespeare. Need some explanation, please. I've taken lines from all of the known works and put them back together as a new tragedy, starring uh, Hamlet... Iago, Romeo, and Juliet, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the Queen, sort of, as Queen Macbeth, Macbeth, the Weird Sisters. Let me run through the plot here real quick. Okay. Hamlet goes to war for Juliet. Juliet is the daughter of King Lear. Prince Hamlet returns home to find that his mother murdered his father. He's sought out by the ghost of his murdered father, and then he's commanded to seek revenge, and Iago persuades Hamlet to believe that Juliet is having an affair with Romeo. Exactly. There it is. (laughs) How long did it take you to do this? It took me about three months, but I did write the first act in college, and I was thinking about the plot for 10 years, of course. I did write a bunch of other stuff in between, so that probably sped me along once I had the idea. What gave you this idea? You know, I thought it would be something cool to do when I was in college, and then I sort of interested in editor about a year year and a half ago, something like that. And of course, that sparked me as well. But I think it's also there's technology that enables you to do this now. It's not that there are search engines, they don't really help. But you can have 12 plays open at once on on a big screen on your computer and look at it all at once. Whereas if you have books all open like that, I think just physically, you can't do it, you know, and you need to have so much information in your head at once. I think that the computer really makes it possible. You say that while this is a celebration of Shakespeare, it's also what you call a literary sit-in. Explain that. To me, there's a kind of um, an ativism in American um, culture that we return more and more, increasingly so, to classics, what we call classics, and um, what we consider to be great literature. And if you go into the basement of the Strand and weed your way through the aisles of the new review books, you'll see the most extraordinary books that get no coverage at all. And I would rather have people read those books than a few of the lesser-known Turgenevs. They're books on the sort of classical canon that just could be supplanted. Those books aren't doing anything for contemporary authors. They're public domain. A lot of people don't understand that. And it's not getting young people jazzed about reading. No, and it's terrifically boring. I remember reading James Fenimore Cooper in high school and hating it. And of course, at home, I was reading Paul Bowles and um, feeling like I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. 
But I was interested in the Paul Bowles. A lot of kids just hated the James Fenimore Cooper and left it at that. And they were right. They didn't relate to that stuff. It didn't relate to them. When they said, reading isn't for me, books aren't for me, as far as what they had seen, they were completely right. I remember taking a course when I was in college, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton. That's what it was. Yeah, it'd be nice if they threw in one contemporary author there. Let's talk more specifically about All the World's a Grave. Now, you said it took you about three months to do. How much creative flexibility did you take with Shakespeare's work? I took a fair amount. It took me about three months to do it, and then it took me about two months to footnote it. And the first draft was 50,000 words. And trying to get it to the right length was the part where I actually had to take more license. Because keeping it metered and keeping it true to Shakespeare, I had to troll through a lot of text. I think he would enjoy it. I think if you were around today, he'd be willing to uh, share credit with me. He did it all the time. You know, he did plays with um, other people, and it was sort of the the way it was done in the day. If he got a slice, he'd be down to do it. Have you taken any heat for this? Well, not yet, but I'm waiting to. I've taken heat on previous books, and um, I'm sort of hoping a few maniacs come out, but I'm also fearing it. Where do you expect that heat to come from? I expect it to come from really, really pent-up Shakespeare people, and I also expect it to come from people who um, don't like the idea of contemporary literature. You know, there's a kind of a resistance to say that anyone contemporary can match up to the greats. And I'm not even sure that such a thing as a great artist, a great writer, even exists. You know, I grew up with um, artists in New York City, This, you know, in the same generation as Basquiat and Warhol and all those guys. And um, there were a lot of astonishing artists that nobody remembers at all. The difference between greatness and, and goodness seems to me such a fine line and so much chance is involved. Those guys will hate me. In this book, you updated some words and phrases from the originals. Porpentine, I changed to porcupine, stuff like that. I couldn't see Shakespeare leaving it that way. If he were around today, he'd be very populist. He would change all that stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there are certain words used in Shakespeare plays that we simply don't understand. You changed that. There, Yeah, exactly. And often I swapped them out for stuff that he'd used in other plays. It's all Elizabethan language, but it's easier to digest Elizabethan language. You also drop some apostrophes. Drop the apostrophes. You know, and there's good reason to drop a lot of them, since um, the apostrophes were there to indicate meter, which often now we understand. And you may change its punctuation. I did, but the punctuation was all editorially changed in the course of the history of the plays anyway. So anything I did there, I think that there's license to do. But you pretty much stayed to what Shakespeare did as far as the acts and the scenes. Yeah, in terms of the acts and the scenes, it's very much in keeping with any Shakespeare play. It's got, uh, the scenes are maybe a little faster, honestly, overall, but there are plays of his where there are really, really fast scenes. And I would say that this is probably an average tragedy. The stage direction is all you. Stage directions are all me. Stage directions are all the editor in any Shakespeare book, pretty much. Now, as far as the characters are concerned, clearly a couple of them are more complex than what we find in Shakespeare, including Juliet and the Queen. Yeah, I really wanted to give a little bit more to um, some of the women characters. The women in Shakespeare were played by young men, 
And I think for that reason, he um, he left them a little thin. People give a lot of depth to those characters in their performance, but I wanted to give it to the characters in the text. You know, there's that scream, Ophelia's scream, and it can be a really shining moment, of course, and people manage quite a bit with it. But I wanted to give those um, actresses more than just a scream to work with. Juliet's a bit of a masochist. I always imagined her as, as that anyway. And of course, I'm completely smitten with Lady Macbeth, and in our contemporary um, political environment, I see it being a relevant interest. Macbeth in this play has backbone, and you can understand why Macbeth becomes king. You know, I'd always misunderstood Macbeth. Patrick Stewart's Macbeth was interesting because he gave Macbeth a backbone too, just through his performance. But I sort of see Macbeth as being the kind of guy who would struggle over a, a question for a long time and then, and then murder you and then feel perfectly fine about it. A lot of people expect that there's a lost Macbeth that's much longer. And I would imagine that that Macbeth has some characteristics that you could see as, um, as being kingly. The three witches are still the three witches. King Lear is pretty much the same character there. But Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, you outed them. Yeah, I made them really, really pretty gay. Guildenstern is um, way gayer. And uh, I have a lot of fun with it. I think it's pretty clear that they're gay in Shakespeare as well. You know, every inch a king. To know the king in inches suggests something to me that um, it just seems irrefutable. So I, I played with that quite a bit. You also clearly played with other things because Hamlet speaks the lines of Juliet. I love that. I laughed out loud. Yeah, I wanted to put some of the really well-known lines in the mouths of other characters. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art there, Romeo? I gave it to Hamlet when he was seeking Romeo to exact a bloody end. How did having kids help you to complete this project? Because you started it in college, but a number of years went by, and now it's finally completed. But you have said that it was the fact that you became a dad that helped you to push this project through. When I took another stab at it years later, because I had had kids, I had a better understanding of Lady Macbeth or my version of Lady Macbeth and um, Macbeth. Lady Macbeth had had uh, kids, and she just had a kind of a roundness and a depth to her character that I couldn't even imagine before I'd had them. Also, she had a nastiness that only parents know. Now, as far as turning this into a stage performance, that's also going to be possible, right? I've got stage versions. I'm dying for, um, I'm dying for it to be up and out there at a, at a nice long length, and please make it happen, everybody out there. John Reed, All the World's a Grave. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. All the World's a Grave is published by Plume. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. It's the final act for New York City's most beloved ballparks. Both Shea and Yankee Stadiums are closing at the end of the baseball season, and the Mets and Yankees will move on to new ballparks. But that's where the similarities end in this story. Ben Allen explains. Yankee Stadium has far surpassed the $4.5 million mark for tickets sold this season, while Shea is still looking to reach $4 million. So that got me thinking, why visit Yankee Stadium but not Shea? I talked to out-of-towners coming to see America's so-called Roman Coliseum. Luis Rueca made the trip from California to see his Angels play. But more importantly... He wanted to see the stadium before it closes. Just the history of the baseball. I mean, if you're a big baseball fan, whether you like the Yankees or not, I think you have to come to the stadium. It's a must. 
There's no denying the history of Yankee Stadium. It opened in 1923 and has been home to Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer. It's hosted 33 World Series, with the Yankees winning 26. Les Kranz, author of Yankee Stadium, A Tribute, says the stadium's history is unparalleled. It's the house that Ruth built. It's where Babe Ruth played. It's where Joe DiMaggio played and Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and the great Lou Gehrig. You know, it has this history. It is a, I often call it the brick-and-mortar American icon. Shea, however, lacks such an illustrious baseball history. It opened in 1964. And there's a longer list of concerts at Shea than retired numbers. Only three Mets numbers are on the left field wall, compared to the Yankees' 16. As a result, out-of-towners are only budgeting in a trip to the Bronx for their stay in New York. Most people go to see the Mets play in spite of Shea Stadium. The stadium just never had the mystique and uh, the rich history that Yankee Stadium does. Maybe that's why Guillermo Robacabo of Los Angeles found it hard to contain himself outside baseball's cathedral. It's pretty exciting. Uh, this is the first time here to actually see a game, so I'm pretty excited to go inside there and see it. I haven't done it yet, but, but I'm pretty excited right now. And there have been more than a handful of out-of-towners paying a visit to the stadium. Rigo Gonzalez is the manager of Stan Sports World across the street from the bleachers entrance. He says he can't believe the crowds he's seeing. Gonzalez says some of his customers come from as far away as Australia. Any merchandise with the final season uh, stadium logo, uh, everything has been flying out of here. Uh, people enjoy, enjoy that. I think they've been looking for anything that has that logo on it. But Steve Fasner of Los Angeles isn't as nostalgic. He says not much will change when the Yankees move across 161st Street. It's going to be obviously a different ground and all that, but I think that's overrated. I think it's the, the fans that make a difference in this stadium. And New York City officials are among those fans. They've requested 180 seats from the Yankees for every home game next year, 40 more than what they want from the Mets. For Cityscape, I'm Ben Allen. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producer McCall Neria. Have a great weekend. <laughs>